Hey y'all, Mike here. And Dave as well. Oh yeah, we're here. Uh, if you're listening to this, this is a remix of one of our previous episodes that we want to highlight from the past year. Today mm. we're talking about the episode 100. It was a big year. It was a big year. Uh, 100, I remember doing the intro for that particular episode in the bathroom of my house. <laughs> <laughs> just hiding from, hiding your child. from my child who could potentially <laughs> cry as I wanted to celebrate with all of you of the fact that we actually were able to hit episode 100. So thank you for listening. Uh, the episode yeah. is nine roles for creating results or growing a team with Esther Derby. Yeah, Esther's uh, really great. She's a very good uh, explainer of concepts. And I, I really liked the discussion that we had around like these different hats that we put on every day as co-workers and mm -hmm. uh you know particularly like if you're a consultant these are different roles that you might th see mm -hmm. but i think they apply to everybody yeah i mean a software engineer esther definitely a friend of the show every time she jumps on the podcast like it's always a, a great learning experience and we hope that uh if you are unable to listen to this episode that you appreciate some of the gems that she drops during this uh episode yeah, and she uh, just came out with a new book last summer called Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change. So, nice. You know, definitely check that out too. Yeah, uh, we'll probably put the link in the show notes if necessary. Uh, we hope you enjoy the show. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the 100th episode of The Rabbit Hole. We never would have made it this far without the support of our colleagues, guests, listeners, and of course our fearless leader and host, Michael Nunez. Before we get started with the episode, we have a special update straight from the Bronx on babies, software and otherwise. And the long road to 100. Here we go. Hey there, Michael Nunez from The Rabbit Hole. Just a few updates as I've been out for some time. As you may know, I've been on paternity leave. Me and my wife have been spending our time raising baby Giovanni and has been quite an experience I've never felt before. Oftentimes you hear software engineers mention in a particular part of the application that they've built their baby, quote unquote. And it's like a feature or like an entire part of the site. And I totally understand what that phrase comes from, but it's not the same. With your baby, as you're building this feature, you probably have a test environment. You're running your tests and ensuring that your baby is doing whatever it is that you want it to do. It's a nice area that you can try and figure out how it would behave and no one out in the public would ever see those changes as you're building them. Me, on the other hand, have had a completely different experience with Baby Giovanni. There are a ton of books that contradict each other. Baby Giovanni is essentially production. And I have to figure out ways to ensure and appease Baby Giovanni. So if that includes bouncing, singing, walking around to get him to be happy, then I'm ready to do that. Everything feels all under the gun and you have to make sure you can do it as fast as possible. One thing that he really likes is that when I carry him and do squats, he seems to enjoy himself. So my legs are going to be hella swole when I come back to the rabbit hole. Maybe I'll send the picture and put it on Twitter for you guys. We have a voicemail number. Feel free to hit us up on the normal channels, which right now is Radio Free Rabbit at Twitter.com. But our voicemail number is 914 999 2165. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions over voicemail as we figure out other channels to receive your feedback. Again, the number is 914 999 
2165. Last but not least, a really big thank you. Thanks to both Dave Anderson and William Jeffries in building the rabbit hole to what it is right now. I can't imagine that it would be where it is without them. They've been great at contributing and even right now holding it down. Great, great stuff. I never would have thought that we would make it as far as we have right now without them. All the editors throughout the way, you probably listened to the first episode and our sound is very different to what it sounds like now. And that's thanks to the people responsible for making me sound smart and making the podcast sound amazing. And last but not least, to all of our listeners, a really big thank you to all of you who subscribe. If you would have asked me two years ago, I would not have thought that I would be part of a podcast that would have 100 episodes. We did it. 100 episodes. Holy crap. I would not have been able to do that without Dave, William, our regular guests, shout outs to Emmanuel and many others, and our honorable guests who have appeared on the show. With that being said, let's dive right in to episode 100 of The Rabbit Hole. Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Dave Anderson. With me today, I have... Stephen Merriweather and William Jeffries. And today we will be discussing responsibility for results versus responsibility for improvement in terms of your management and team style and what kind of forms and shapes that takes. With us today, we have the esteemed Esther Derby. How are you doing, Esther? I'm great. I made it home through the snow, so all is well. (laughs) Yeah, unlike in New York where we just get snow for a brief duration and then ice and gross stuff after that. Uh, I guess it seems that in Minnesota they have real snow. Yeah, it's like a 7-Eleven slushy mixed with dirt. <laughs> it's not not the romantic kind of snow. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself for folks who might not be familiar? Sure. Well, I started my career as a programmer, so I have that in my background. I haven't written code for a while, but um, that's how I started. And, you know, I did some testing because we all always used to test our own code. And I was a team lead and a dev manager and internal consultant. And what was clear to me from all of those different roles was that our work environment has a huge impact on our ability to be successful. So that's where I I focus a lot of my attention right now is how can we create work environments where good work is the default and people find satisfaction in their work where it's not a soul sucking experience. I love that concept where, you know, you're designing the system to encourage the behavior. And often like it's, it's kind of like the opposite where people want, you know, heroics or or what have you that save the day. But actually, if you just step back and look at the larger forces at play, you can kind of understand how to live a better life. Esther, the way that I first uh, found out about you was through a Google Doc that was just floating around in the Stride Google Drive, which I have no idea where it is now. It may no longer exist or it's in some dusty corner, but it was like a list of agile videos and consulting videos that you must understand if you uh, when you're starting at Stride. And one of them was your uh, talk about six rules mm-hmm. for change. That's good to hear. There are six rules for change. Actually, there's seven huh? now. 
Which, yes, <laughs> oh my I, goodness. Wouldn't, I wouldn't be a Which is good, great. Like, good role model for change if I refused to uh, uh, add something new when I thought about it. So, <laughs> Can we go over what the seven rules are? Yeah, let's hear it. Start from congruence because it's the only place from which empathy is possible. Honor the past, present, and the people because paradoxically, honoring the past helps people let go of it. Assess what is. Because change doesn't start with a vision, it starts with where you are. Activate networks. Don't rely on the hierarchy. Real work happens through webs of connections. Guide rather than standardize. Figure out what has to be consistent across the organization and where local evolution is possible. And experiment, because big changes freak people out, and small changes are a vehicle for learning (laughs) and contain the mess. And use yourself because you are the most important tool for change you have. It's pretty good stuff. Yeah, I, I appreciate how the rules for change themselves are also malleable. And also this this feels like a sequel, like a Hollywood sequel. It's a big blockbuster. The seventh rule. <laughs> mm, yeah, that does sound kind of ominous, doesn't it? <laughs> so how does this tie into results versus improvement? These six rules, seven rules. I think you can make a lot of ties in that, you know, if you want to improve something, you have to assess what is and figure out what you can, what experiments you can do to move things in a a more fruitful direction. And that means you have to, you know, honor what's happening now so that, so that people don't feel like you're just trashing their efforts, right? Their past efforts. So I think there's a lot of tie-ins. Yeah. yeah, I think a a manager, a really great manager of a team will, probably know know how to like work these levers either unconsciously or consciously yeah i i thought that so recently we were, we were talking about kind of the different roles that one might take that have uh fall into different areas in terms of your responsibility for improvement for another person versus your responsibility for the results that they're they're doing and i thought that was a pretty pretty powerful tool where like you know in the bottom right quadrant where you're responsible for results only and the growth of no one else then you're just a hands-on expert and you're just getting things done you don't care about anybody else maybe in the middle you're a teacher and you're showing people and kind of working through those things and uh you know in the upper right hand corner where you're like responsible for like results and growth you're you're a partner you're like really in it with them together and what's the final quadrant well there's nine of them So one axis looks at responsibility for improvement and the other looks at responsibility for results. It comes from some work by Champion, Keel, and McClendon. And I studied with Gene McClendon, so that's how I became aware of it. But it's it's a way of thinking about in a given situation, if I'm a coach, if I'm a team lead, if I'm a consultant, how can I be an assistant in this situation? And it's also has something to do with what the psychological contract is. Like if I've been hired as a hands-on expert, you know, to write code, and then suddenly I'm trying to teach people how to do something or teach the managers how to do something, it's going to be extremely disruptive, right? And it will, it will often be taken as a, trying to one up somebody. So it's, it's useful in a lot of different, a lot of different dimensions, but thinking about, you know, what is my responsibility here? Is it for just, you know, getting stuff done? Or am I supposed to actually leave this team in better shape than when I got here? 
more capable. Esther, does this mean that a quadrant isn't better than another quadrant? That's correct. It's all about what's the best fit for the function and what, what's, the, what's the relationship you have established. So I remember a billion years ago when I was taking ballroom dance lessons, there was, there was somebody who was really quite a good dancer, and she tried to give some pointers to someone, and that other person just got really angry because he had not agreed that she could be his teacher. It's not that one is right or wrong, but it is what is the fit for the situation and what is the fit for the relationship. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's nice having a tool that provides some additional vocabulary that we can use to communicate about these things. So we can address problems like that where there's a difference of expectation. Well, and, and I've seen that play out in the sort of situations that, that you guys are often in where you are hired to come into a company and work on writing code. And sometimes the expectation is that you will actually impart better practices or knowledge of certain languages or techniques. But if the people there on in the team haven't been told that, they may not have accepted you as teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not to say that you can't, e even if you have been hired in position as a teacher, doesn't mean that you can apply that role at a company or like as a, as a person, but it's something that you kind of have to earn and like, you know, come to in an organic way. Yeah. So as a team lead, I imagine interacting with various people in, in various groups, you have to do differently. So how do you suss out where someone thinks they are? And if they're, if they think they are somewhere where they're not, how do you help them get to where they think they need to be? So if, if someone thinks they're a, a technical expert, you probably want to interact with them differently than you would a partner. But how do you figure out what the expectation is? Do you just ask the question ahead of time? Well, you could say, how do you see yourself on this project? And that might, that might get you some answers or some, at least an opening to have more conversation. You know, if they say, oh, I see yeah, myself yeah, as the lead nice. engineer and the expert on blah, 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 tells you something. Yeah, definitely. Mm. This is making me making me wonder about what all of my coworkers think that their role is on the team. I never thought <laughs> to ask them that. That's a great question. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to have like a label for it or like you know, like you you were saying before an ability to like ask permission. Like I I know like pair programming is a great a, a great thing to talk about all of these different aspects of the quadrant more towards the results side. Mm -hmm. I, ideally if you're in a great pair like your partners, like you're both helping each other grow you're both responsible for results you're writing code but sometimes you may not want to take a step back and be like let me show you something let me model this for you which is the step below that and you can say okay I'll, I'll, let me do this right now and and then you can replicate it what i've sort of defaulted to these days is to model what i think are best practices and assume that the other person understands and follows along and let them slow me down and say, stop, I don't understand this. Can you please explain? Or actually, I'd like to do this in a different way rather than trying to assume that there's something that I don't know that they, or something that they don't know that I should teach them. Yeah. Well, I think that's always a good starting place. Do you have the explicit discussion about, you know, if I'm going too fast, slow me down or? Sometimes I'll say, if you have any questions about what I'm doing, definitely ask me. Or something to that effect. But I usually do it in passing and quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting idea about signals, like kind of laying everything out on the table and, you know, having that 
available for someone to point to and be like, oh, this is this is what's happening right now. You're going too fast. Like, or uh, I don't understand that. Like, just so that there's a, a an expectation that that's okay. Cool. So we've talked a bit about like individual interactions and like working towards like growth one-on-one. What if, what if you're in a situation where you're responsible for a whole team or a group of people? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm really curious about this subject. How much as a person that's new to a team or a team leader, should they focus on leveling up the entire team so that the team is more efficient and, and has, uh, and produces more as opposed to leveling up individuals and making the individual a better programmer or engineer. So I guess the dichotomy there is how much do you focus on actually delivering and then how much do you focus on getting the team moving faster? Well, I, I think as, as a leader or as a manager, there's certain things you can do within your team to make the entire team deliver faster. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's certain things you can do to help individuals level up. And I'm curious how you identify which person needs leveling up and how, how you identify, how do you, how do you identify when it's necessary to just unblock the team? Well, it's a, it's an interesting question. And I, I think the traditional assumption is that if you have, if you pay attention to individual skills, you, you'll end up with a great team. And I think that is not the case. I think if you focus on having a great team, then you're going to have great individuals because they'll learn from each other, right? And they will um, challenge each other and they'll they'll grow together, right? So I, I think it's uh, great teams result in great individuals rather than the opposite. So just focus on improving the team and then the individual improvement will follow on its own? Yeah, well, sometimes you need to put some special effort into it. I mean, I've done retrospectives with teams where they talk about, you know, where do we have a lot of strength and where where are we, you know, well, we're only mediocre in a particular skill. What what can we do to improve as a group? And, you know, which, you know, which individuals might in, invest in this and then and then share it with the team. So so it's not it's not strict you know it, it individuals learn stuff and individuals have capabilities their capabilities are amplified when they're in a team that engages in continuous mutual help and learning and where they're amplifying each each person's strengths a really interesting diagram a while ago I, Llewellyn Falco drew it anyway it was like he was diagramming what happens in mob programming and you know, if you have kind of a line here, each individual has, you know, strengths and weaknesses and and mobbing allows you to take advantage of everybody's strengths and it kind of mitigates the weaknesses because you're, you know, you're all working together all the time. And I think that's true even for teams that aren't mobbing but are working really well together. You're able to take advantage of everybody's strengths and minimize the impact of of areas where they're not as you know not as well versed in a, a technique or a language or practice or whatever it is. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've been going through that recently. Actually, I've been mobbing on adding automated end-to-end testing for an application, and recently I've seen exactly this dynamic. We had a mob session, and there was one person who was an expert in the code base and really understood 
where the skeletons were hidden and all the edge cases, there was somebody who really understood the infrastructure. There was somebody who really understood the testing tooling. And then there was a QA engineer who had been doing all of the manual testing. Uh, and it was really interesting watching the group work together. It didn't really matter who was at the keyboard because you could sort of fill in for each other's weaknesses. Mm, yeah. Enzyme testing sounds like a, there's a lot of monsters there. Like you have to have a full understanding in order to have an effective test. So Yeah. And it was like, great. we would have these questions like, what actually do we really need to test? And the QA guy was like, well, here's what we actually do test. <laughs> so that's a good starting point. And here are the areas where we've actually found bugs before. So is the solution to just mob program all the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a really, it's a really great story. And mobbing is one way to do that. And there are, there are teams that manage to do it without mobbing all the time, but be, because they are engaging in that sort of discussion as they do their work. But it kind of it kind of shows up the fallacy of right. you know we all have to have you know if we just have five superstars we'll have a great team right because it really requires the specialization of each person as well as their ability to learn near neighbor domains and absorb from other people. And as a manager or a team lead, how have you found effective ways to foster that communication within the team if they're not doing something like mob programming? I think pairing helps. I think if you can do ego list reviews, that helps, which is something we use. What's what's an e ego list review? Uh, it's a Weinberg style technical review, where you're actually looking you're you're looking through each other's code, something and examining the code, not the person, right? So you're you're just there are particular particular protocols you follow that makes it you know not a horror show. <laughs> as many PRs uh, I know, often I know, devolve I know, into. I know. So that 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 can help. I mean, I've uh, I've at various times done sorts of chalk talk about it, or we'll just pick an interesting piece of code and we'll you know we'll talk about well how was this implemented? How what are other ways it could be implemented? So it's a it's just a way of of having those discussions, you know, in a in a particular setting that's focused on learning not as fluid as mobbing would be, but it has some of the same benefits. It sounds like a, a, a lot of that kind of comes back to like feeling safe, like, you know, doing a code review in a way that doesn't feel like an attack or like considering alternatives, even if we may not go with them, like just for the sake of bettering ourselves and considering what what might be even if we don't actually go through that i read an article in the harvard business review recently that talked about this it sounds like very similar to what you were talking about with the weinberg style reviews the idea came from pixar and the way that they were able to transform disney's culture and get them back to making hit animated films and what they did was they, they added one rule to the meetings when they did these when they did these reviews of scripts. And I was kind of surprised at the rule. I mean, so they began by saying, you know, obviously this is an egoless place and we're gonna provide criticism and it's gonna be hard and you know, just be, we all have to trust each other and be safe. And that's like an easy thing to say, but oftentimes you say it and it doesn't really feel that way. What mm -hmm. they added to that was they said, 
and we're being very explicit about everyone in this room being an equal and everyone in this room making suggestions and the final decision is always going to continue to lie with the person who is actually doing the implementation the, per the people who are actually writing the script or you know in our case the people who are actually writing the code and we tried that on my current team and it really did change the vibe that's super interesting because that's one of the general guidelines for a Weinberg style review is that ultimately the person who wrote the code makes the decision. And it, w it was hard. It was awkward and difficult, just like in the Pixar meetings, they say that it always is. And I remember we got to a point where everybody disagreed and it seemed like we were getting more and more suggestions and we were not getting any closer to a consensus. But we pushed through it and eventually we started to hone in on things that actually felt better. And I don't think that we got to a perfect solution, but I do think that everybody left that meeting feeling like we had left it significantly better than we found it. Good stuff. Yeah. I mean, like those, those kind of exchanges too, people can become very invested in their ideas and their expertise being like an extension mm -hmm. of themselves. And so by choosing one expertise over another, one design it for another it can feel like a, a personal attack and an eroding of like your value so what do you mean you don't like my method name <laughs> does that mean you don't like me <laughs> ah, you finally figured it out yes <laughs> it was the method names ah, yeah it, it's intense yeah and there's like an interesting comparison between like there, there's like the the legend of the programmer and where you know the programmer goes into a room by himself and locks him in side there and writes until 3 a.m and whatever it's like very like legendary solo thing but like programming is not like that anymore it's a it's a team sport and you have to be good with people in order to like really make a great thing because it's just too complicated for one person to lock themselves in the room i i think with a few exceptions it's always been that way because I was writing code in the 70s and, you know, the best, the best code always was you'd work on something, you'd get some input, you'd work on it, you'd get some input. It wasn't the, you know, the lone person sitting in a room, you know. I mean, Alan Turing yeah. could probably do that, but the rest of us, it is definitely a matter of, of communication and collaboration. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, sometimes it felt like you know, requirements, documents, and other things like kind of just put up barriers and like, it's okay. Well, we don't have to talk. <laughs> For those at home, uh, Esther uh, looked like she was about to vomit. <laughs> just barf. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a way to put distance between people. The sad thing is that the, the people who might write that document have a huge amount of knowledge, but most of that knowledge is not con actually contained in the document and is lost when they hand it off to someone else to, to write the code. So it was a yeah. quest for efficiency that didn't actually help. It was fun while it lasted, we'll say. <laughs> no, I worked that way and <laughs> it was at one point and it wasn't that, <laughs> it wasn't that much fun. Cool. Yeah, so thankfully, we're talking about collaboration and gathering together. Yeah, so I really feel like we went through a lot of these uh, roles here today on this podcast. Thank you for uh, being a teacher, Esther, and teaching us about these roles. William and Stephen, partners, as always. <laughs> <laughs> 
do you, Esther, do you have anything you'd like to plug or any way that people can reach out to you? Well, I, th- I think we also modeled continuous mutual help. And I will, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, send, I'll send a picture of that grid so people can look at it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. I think that'll be super helpful. So I'll, I'll do that. The other thing I, I, I should mention is I have a book coming out this summer, which is super oh, exciting. Ooh, that's that cool. is very um, exciting. Yeah. Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change, Micro Shifts and Macro Results. By the time mm-hmm. the book comes out, it's going to be eight. I can feel it. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's no. We're already to the galleys. When is it dropping? It's oh, I don't, I don't remember the actual pub date off the top of my head. July, but I'm looking at the copy editing now. So traditional publishing is a waterfall process. So anyway, but coming out this summer. That's fantastic. Right. That's going to be a and blockbuster, if, I'm sure. And if people want to get hold of me, it's I'm it's pretty easy. I'm Esther at EstherDerby.com or Esther Derby on Twitter. That's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was really lovely. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Esther. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and our amazing host, Michael Nunez, who's out being a dad, and me, your host, Dave Anderson, Thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.